Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp Oshart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the EZR program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Before we get started, though, I do want to mention disclosures regarding financial disclosures. Dr. Combs does receive an honorarium for this podcast from speechtherapypd.com. And I also receive an honorarium speech link. I am a presenter for Speech Therapy PD, and I receive royalty payments for that. And I also own Speech Dynamics. So neither of us have non-financial disclosures. So there we go. So I would like to welcome you to our live SpeechLink podcast, sponsored, of course, by SpeechTherapyPD.com. And welcome to The Competent Clinician, evidence-based practice and real-world data collection. You are more than welcome, however, to participate. We are live. Just type your question or comment into the chat. And when appropriate, one of us will read it, and our esteemed guest will respond. So I'm Shar Boshart, your speech-language pathologist host, where the goal is to connect and link with outstanding professionals in our field. Today is a special episode, however. It is a Research Studies and Practical Strategies podcast, where the objective is to merge the two. The intent is for practical-oriented researchers to bring research findings to light discuss them, and link the research results with practical evidence-based strategies that we can all use. And help us to do that, today my guest is Sandra G. Combs, PhD, CCC, SLP. She is a Kentucky native living in Chevy Chase, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., and she is the Program Capstone Coordinator and an Assistant Professor in the Speech-Language Pathology Doctoral Program at Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions. She earned her BA in Speech-Language Pathology and Audiology at the University of Kentucky in 1988, and her MA in Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Cincinnati in 1990, after working clinically for 15 years in private practice and as a school speech-language pathologist Dr. Combs returned to the University of Cincinnati on a U.S. Department of Education Leadership Training Grant, where she earned her Ph.D. in 2019 with a focus on language and literacy. And she was an assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati from 2009 to 2019. Her research and teaching interests include language development and disorders, language-based literacy disorders, Phonetics, speech sound disorders in preschool children, parent-teacher collaboration and coaching, and the use of ultrasound for correction of er and s. Thinking we may have to have you back, Sandra. (laughs) I love a researcher who knows therapy. And prior to the podcast, she did encourage me to call her by her first name. So welcome to the Speech League, Sandra. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I will make one correction. I probably have a typo in there, but I 
I earned my PhD in 2009, not 2019. I left in Cincinnati. Oh, in did I say 19? That's oh, okay. I meant to say. It's, okay. it's not a typo. I might have said it. <laughs> I, I read it wrong. But I thought I that's read a really wrong. long PhD. I took a long time. If it's, if I didn't finish, if I started in 05, they'd it's a really good one. before 2019. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Hopefully I said that where you earned your PhD in 2009. Nine, yes, yes. Yes. With a focus on language and literacy. Yes. Everything else yes. is correct. Yes. Perfect. Okay, good. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Great. Well, you know, kind of leading us into that, you were out in the field for 15 years mm-hmm. working with kids, obviously, on the front lines, I call it. And then you went back and got your PhD. I'm wondering, what was your motivation? So I, interestingly, when I did my master's degree at University of Cincinnati, Dr. Nancy Craighead was the program director there and mentored me in that program, obviously, because she was the program director. And then I ended up actually working for her private practice. She and two other professors owned a private practice at the time. And I did therapy with kids in Head Start and school-age kids. And Hmm. I actually saw a lifespan. The first three years of my clinical work were lifespan. I did nursing homes. I did group homes with intellectually and developmentally disabled adults, deaf adults who had been in institutions and in those 70s and 80s deinstitutionalized. So I did a lot of different things. And I really, one of the things I loved about my master's program was I loved every practicum setting that I was in. I was ready for the next one when I got to the next one. I loved the schools, but then I loved the hospitals and I loved adults and I loved kids. But then after working for a few years, I sort of focused in on phonology and preschool. And because I worked for Nancy and she was so involved at ASHA, we were always encouraged to go to conferences and bring back what we learned at the conference and use it in our private practice. So we would have these big, wonderful staff meetings and talk about the research. And that's a benefit of having a researcher as your clinical mentor. I was able to do that very early in my career. And then really, I started this strange journey of this little guy that I saw that I couldn't do anything with, couldn't get anything. It was selectively mute. And I spent an entire 12-week semester just digging, trying to figure out what was going on with this kid and not use standardized tests and learn about him and learn what he knew and learn what he understood. And, And when I talked to Nancy about it, she said, you know, that's research. And that was sort of the first time that that I really thought of my clinical practice as research. And so Hmm. that seed was there. And then the Department of Education Leadership Grant came and and there was an opportunity. My kids were in school, so there was an opportunity there. I I wasn't, you know, in the throes of sleepless nights. (laughs) I was very busy when I went back for my doctorate. But so that kind of started it. I just had questions clinically and my mom had an eighth grade education, but all of my sisters have all but one have college degrees. Two of us have postgraduate degrees. So I had questions about poverty. I had questions about the research related to kids in poverty. I was on food stamps. I was on, but we also didn't live in a community of poverty. So I had all these questions about my own life and speech language pathology and what I was reading. And then also then the digging and the assessment side. And I think there are a lot of clinicians who love assessment And I think that's why they love assessment, because it's constant digging. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of clinicians out there who like variety in their caseload. And that's because it keeps those questions coming. They're Mm -hmm. researchers at heart as well. There are lots of things about 
that drive you into speech language pathology, that maybe you're a latent researcher. A lot of us say that we're we're not good at math and science, but if you have a degree in speech language pathology, you have a degree in a science field. So you're better at math and science than you think you are. I used to say that as well, but I think there's a lot of a lot of that in our field. I think there are a lot of people with really good questions, and that's what a researcher is. A researcher is someone who asks questions and then seeks answers. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it. And I get a sense that you are leading us as clinicians into perhaps thinking about doing research and combining that with the, because we haven't talked about this, combining that with the data collection and so on. But where are we currently with evidence-based practice and the clinician on the front lines working with the kids? What's going on? There are a couple pieces to that answer, right? So we know the evidence-based triangle. Everybody in speech pathology has that beaten into their heads. We go to ASHA, we talk about it. When I was teaching graduate student, master students, future clinicians, we would often talk about what does that look like in practice, right? So you have the family and the patient's wishes and desires, and you have what the research and the evidence say, and then you have that, what's the clinician expertise, and what does that look like, right? If you're a novice clinician, you have to rely more on this and this, right? And then the longer you practice, sometimes what happens is we rely way too much on our own experience and we don't go back to the updated research, right? So I think what happens is we all know that triangle and we and we respect that triangle, but depending on where we are in our practice, we either don't have enough foundation to really have a good base of the triangle or we rely too heavily on our own experiences and not going back to the research. Some of that I think is because it's hard to find the research because Unless you are in a university setting, the only one you have access to at your fingertips are the ASHA journals, right? Which are fabulous. They're great places to get updated research. But there are a lot of areas at our field that we need the other people. We need the mental health stuff. We need psychology. We need the cognitive science. We need developmental and medical science for our kids who are medically fragile and have a lot going on. We need the OT, we need the PT, we need that other research. And so sometimes it can be hard. So it's about where do you go to get that? Where do you find that? I think that becomes hard. But I also think where we're doing really well in our field is that clinicians are making it known that they want to partner with academic researchers. And there are lots of academic researchers out there that are now trying to bridge that and work with clinicians who are eager to inform the field because those practicing clinicians have a lot of knowledge. And where we miss the mark is, and this is sort of where one of my passions is, where we miss the mark is that we don't teach in the graduate programs the basics of case-based single subject research. That's coming to ASHA. You can go to the ASHA website and just Type in your search, single subject, single case design, multiple probe design, multiple baseline design, and get articles that are in, that are driving that instead of the big N randomized controlled studies. We need those, but we also need those other ones to, to say, here's how it works in real life, right? Yes. I've read Schreiber. I've read Laura Justice. I've read Carol Westby. I've read those and they're solid, good studies that drive and inform me. 
but what does that look like? How do I do Hodson in real life? And how do I get data in real life? And that's what then goes back and says, ooh, this really is good because look, this therapist and this therapist and this therapist all did and collected data on it and they got the same results that Laura Justice did in her big end study. So now that has even more power than it had before. And we can now go to conferences and we can say as clinicians, we are reporting data. We're not just reporting what I think anecdotally I saw. I can give you a figure and a graph that says participant one, two, three, four, and five in my practice, I did this with, I did baseline. I collected baseline data. I systematically looked at the data every day. I plugged it into a graph and this is what I saw. And so that is data. And now I can go and I can present it and I can submit to ASH. I can submit to a state association that's peer reviewed and looking at the research side of what you're doing as a clinician. And that has a lot of power because everyone in this audience knows that when you go to a conference, what do you want? You want to know, how can I use this on Monday when I go back to work? Right. That's what we go for. We go to say, I want to A, be better informed about what I am doing and B, maybe find a few new tricks to put in my bag, but I want to know how to do it on Monday. So if clinicians are presenting that data, they're going to present it that way because they know that's what we want, right? So Mm -hmm. it's really powerful information. Yeah. You are taking this whole data collection to a whole nother level. You are way beyond, oh, I'm going to sit and take a few tally marks, you know, so that I can put it into my graph and I can, you know, bring it to the next IEP meeting. We're way beyond that. It's kind of a paradigm shift. It can be with the advent, with the growth of clinical doctorates in our field, we now have that bridge, right? We're training master clinicians who can then be leaders in the schools, leaders in the hospitals, leaders in the private practice to show their staff how to do this practically in the real world, how to Mm -hmm. use what works clearinghouse, how to go use a book like this, single case subject design, how to do that, how it's doable. It's doable in the real world with three to five kiddos. We often hear ABA. We all know what ABA is in the autism, right? In ABA therapy. But ABA was born out of a research methodology. So if take that out, let's take that out and whatever that brings with it in your mind. And let's think about baseline intervention and then withdrawal. That's what ABA is base taking some data with no intervention and then doing intervention. And at the end of the session, taking data and Mm -hmm. then not doing that intervention and taking data and seeing if it goes like this or if it goes like baseline up and then down again, that would be something that would be reversible. Most of the things that we do in speech pathology, we don't want to be reversible, right? We want them to keep going. So what we hope is we get this with intervention and then maybe it stays, maybe it plateaus without intervention. And if we do it again, we get them to another level. So that would be ABAB. But there are also other kinds of single case design that you can use where you can do different treatments and look at how those, you know, alternating treatment designs or multiple probe designs. And you're just doing different kinds of probes at the end of your session. And one of the things that we talked about a lot, again, when I was teaching master's students who are future clinicians, was that we would talk about data collection and therapy. And how does that look? Because it's very daunting when you're a young therapist, because you think, how am I supposed to do this when I'm all supposed to be watching them watch their mouth and do all these things. And 
to me, it's a reminder that we need to remember as clinicians that a therapy session shouldn't be 30 minutes of data collection. And research design helps you get there, that you spend 25 minutes, 28 minutes doing intervention and three to five minutes with a quick and dirty probe. Did they do it or did they not do it? Or you do a session and then the beginning of the next session, you collect some probe data and then you do your session. When we did the R ultrasound clinic at the University of Cincinnati, that was one of the ways we would collect a little bit, a little bit of probe data at the beginning to see what they remembered from the last session. And then we would collect a little bit of probe data at the end. But the bulk of the session was teaching, was formation, was watching, was coaching and modeling and doing what we do and what we love to do as therapists. That's part of it. Okay, that's good. So is that kind of a built-in procedural kind of thing? You're talking about single subjects. You're talking about case studies. Mm -hmm. We haven't got into the replication piece, but is that like one of the characteristics of this type of data that you're talking about where you take your baseline and then you do your therapy and then for the last, you know, couple of minutes, you generate some data on what you just did. Is Mm -hmm. that part of that model? Yeah. And I think a lot of clinicians are already doing that. I bet many in this audience would say, this sounds like my therapy session. Okay. So what do we need to do different? You just need to know how to look at that information, how to talk about that information, how to graph that information and how to examine a visual, like a graph and look at where your data separates out, what the trends are. And you can find that information. There's a great article on ASHA. The authors are Byers, Reichel, and Simmons. And it's called 2012. It's Single Subject Experimental Design for Evidence-Based Practice. It is a beautiful article that takes, basically it takes this textbook, a a textbook on single subject design, Mm -hmm. and it pairs down many of the different methodological pieces of single subject, the different types of single subject design, alternating treatment or multiple baseline or all these different terms. And it takes it and it pairs it down into an article and a review of what that looks like in our literature, in our field. Okay. Okay. And then you can start to understand, okay, that's what I do with this type of therapy. Okay. That's what I'm doing when I'm doing some push in or teacher coaching, or those kinds of things, right? Right. So if I'm doing AAC, and I'm trying to coach teachers on use of core words, right? I could do a multiple baseline across different participants, and I could see what happens. How much are they using the words when I coach and remind them? And how much are they using core words when I don't coach and remind them, right? And you just do that by just having a little checklist, but they do it or they don't do it. And then you can say to the principal, look, they're using it this much more when I can get in there for 15 minutes a day. That's all it takes, 15 minutes a day. And look at how much more the teachers are using it. So can I have 15 minutes a day to coach our teachers so that all of the kids who are on AC devices are getting maximum input? That's the selling point, right? And that's what we all, we want everyone else to be as excited about what we can offer our patients, our clients, our students, as we are. And the way we do that is showing them the positive trend. And how do you show someone a positive trend? You show them data. We are right now in the throes in this world of data. All of us are in our face constantly. We're looking at the news. We're looking at different research articles. We're looking at scientists who are saying this versus this versus this. Well, what's the difference? If I can look at the data myself, then I can see what those trends are versus saying 
so-and-so said this and -and so-and-so said that. Well, what's the data? And that's what happens with us in principle, with an MD who's running your department, who who's fighting you on more swallowing therapy or coaching your nurses on dysphagia screening. How do I get buy-in? I show them the data. And how can I do data collection in the real world? Start looking at what works clearinghouse. Take a look at that buyer's article and just sort of get familiar and comfortable with these terms. And then look up, just go the best way to learn about these things to me and to how I learned about them in my doctoral programs is I just went to Ash and I just searched statistical models. So instead of searching about ELL and vocabulary, I searched multivariate, different types of analyses. I searched ANCOVA, I searched ANOVA. So I read real studies with those particular models. So do the same thing with single subject, single case design, multiple probe, multiple baseline, and you'll get articles from ASHA and all of those wonderful journals. If you have access to other resources, libraries, then you can search the wider literature and not just that. And then also, like I said, What Works Clearinghouse is free and it has amazing tutorials on all of this information, amazing tutorials that are broad in scope about all of the different types of single subject design, how to collect the data, how to read the work, how to report it. And it actually has a training. So you could then edit articles if you wanted to, if you were really into it and you love doing that. So there's lots of ways to learn about these things. I think the challenge is that historically they haven't been published because they've been on the lower end of that. You know, when we look at the power in a research article, we look at big ends randomized control, double blind, those are still needed. But what happens in the real world with real patients, with real students in human subjects and in the behavioral sciences, it's not clean. You can't control for everything. So we do still need the small end studies to replicate the big end studies to say, this is what it looks like in the clinic. This is what it looks like at school where I have a hundred kids on my caseload and I only get to see this kid 30 minutes a week. What can I do? How much bang can I get for my buck in 30 minutes a week? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is so good. I love this. I wish that I was still in the game and could do some of this. But yeah, you know, I think about, I mean, there's so many literature review articles out there. I mean, you know, every time you turn around, here comes a new one, which is good. But I don't think that these, you know, small n, small number of cases are going to make the cut. Is there ever going to be a literature review of these single case studies? I mean, is that possible so that we could not have to like weed through all of these? And then plus you have the big end studies that are saying, oh, this particular thing doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I love what you just said. You cannot take away all the variables of all the things that we're working with. I mean, communication is just such a crossroads of disciplines. Mm -hmm. And there's just so many variables. And even when you identify the variables, all your kids are going to have different sub variables of those particular variables. So it is tough, tough to do. So Mm -hmm. I love this. So my original question is, are we going to see literature reviews of these smaller case studies? Yes. What you'll see is the smaller case designs are getting published. They're getting accepted. I actually have a co-instructor that has a SLPD from Rocky Mountain, and she just got word that she's being published in language, speech, and hearing in the schools. And 
all of our capstones are single subject design. That's one of the, that is the requirement. That's the research requirement oh, for a clinical doctor. Oh, I doctorate. didn't know that. For a clinical doctor at Rocky Mountain, that is the big research requirement. So they don't do large end. They don't do T-tests. They don't do group designs. They do single subject design. Okay. And they are getting published. There was, one was, had an article in the leader a few weeks ago, but also even before that, I will tell you one of my favorite school age researchers is Sandra Gillum. Mm -hmm. And Sandra Gillum has some solid single subject and case based articles out there. So they're getting there. And again, like I said, if you just go to, I went to the ASHA website and just put in my search on the research page, single subject. And then I put in ABA design and then I put in alternating treatment design, multiple baseline design. And a plethora of articles come up in different areas of our field. Wow. I think it was about five years ago. Another reason that's happening, it's happening across fields as well. About five years ago now, the Department of Ed in their leadership training, when you have a Department of Ed grant, you come then to the Department of Ed to report on the work that you're doing, the scholars that you're training, et cetera, et cetera. So about five years ago, the keynote speaker was a researcher from the Department of Education who was saying these can be done very well. They can be done cleanly and solidly. They need to be taken seriously. We need to learn more about them and we need to start publishing them. And so, bang, now you have the upper echelon of researchers and grant recipients who are now going, oh, I got to do this if I want to get funded again, right? There you go. So it's coming. And then again, like I said, I think there are a lot of younger researchers out there, younger academic researchers that I've met, I would say in the last five to 10 years, who are clinicians, not just academic researchers. And they are really passionate about, it's what drove them to get a PhD. Like me, there was no clinical doctorate when I made this decision to do this. That wasn't an option for me. I might have gone that route. I don't know. I really don't know. Having said that, there are a lot of really, really solid researchers out there around the country, people that you all would recognize their names, who want to partner with clinicians and do good work that's clinically relevant. And clinical translational research is invaluable in our field. It is invaluable in our field. How do we connect? You know, I cold call. When I was a doctoral student, I emailed Luigi Girolametto when I wanted to talk about the Hannon program and the work that they did in teacher coaching. And by golly, he emailed back. And then he came to my little 15-minute technical session. And a research relationship was born. No connection since then because I didn't pursue that. But they're out there. You know, there are a lot of good researchers out there. So if you have one that you've read some really good work and you're interested, it doesn't hurt to say hey, I'm going to email this person at the University of whatever. I live in Wyoming. I'm going to email and say, I'm a clinician who is really interested in partnering and being on a research team with you. Is that something that you're interested in? It's school-age research or it's whatever. The first step, I think, would be to really learn, dig in, go to What Works Clearinghouse, go to that buyer's article, there's another site that actually, you have, it's a paid membership, but it's a great site as well, therapyscience.com, where you can access a lot of research and you can access a lot of information on single case design. If you're a nerd like me, you might even buy yourself a textbook. I've been known to do that before. <laughs> and a really good one is this 2018 single case research methodology. 
It feels a little at first like it's really just talking about ABA designs. So the first few chapters, if that's if you're not an ABA person, can be a little bit dense. But as a desk reference for when you need to kind of find something deeper than what that buyer's article has about a type of single subject research, you can find it there. Those are some really great resources. I think starting with what works clearinghouse is the easiest. And then again, starting with ASHA and just searching for articles in your area. And then you can get on libraries and search for unpublished dissertations and capstones that are single hmm. subject design. That's another option. Okay. Now, Capstone, you are there. You know, are there various Capstone universities around the country or is this it? No, there are there are a number of universities now that have SLPD clinical doctorate programs for speech language pathology. They're not all exactly the same. It's kind of like a PhD. They're not all exactly the same. The scope of the coursework is not exactly the same. The key is that in, in almost any graduate program, there's always going to be some sort of higher level requirement that a student must be in the research for, whether it's a thesis, a capstone, or a dissertation. The difference in a capstone and dissertation is a broader, longer project. Hmm. For us, our students do capstones that are based in the practice where they are. So most of them are working full-time. They're working in a hospital. Their Chances are their capstone is going to be a research question that's directly related to the patient population that they see. And they're going to work with their hospital administrators to try to do a small scale project with three to six to 10 max patients and get some data. And then they'll present that and write that up as a capstone. So the difference between when you read a thesis, a capstone and a dissertation versus a research article is in a research article, you have page limits. You have in a peer reviewed journal, they have page limits. So you're only getting this much of the literature review. But if you read someone's unpublished dissertation or capstone, you're getting 50 to 100 pages of literature review, deep, deep dive literature review. Hmm. Instead of summarizing the literature on the Hodson approach and giving you four or five citations behind that summary statement, you're going to have a couple paragraphs on every one of those citations. So it's a broader scope because you're learning the process. So that's why they're longer, they're deeper, but some get published. But what happens when they get published? They have to cut them to death. It's Way hard back. to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. 100 pages to 15. Yeah, it's not easy. Or to however many words you're allowed, depending with figures and references. And yeah, appendices. that's not easy. That's so, not easy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. This is interesting. So where can we go next? Are you going to share some of this with us, the case studies, or give us some nitty gritty I can give you some sort of overview of some projects. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a sense of it. Yeah. I'd like a little more of the detail. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say you wanted to look at the easy measurements, our tick. Are they doing it? Are they not doing it? So if I was taking my ultrasound patients, clients, kids that I saw back in Cincinnati when I was there, what we would do is there's broad scale research on that, but in this methodology, in this train of thought, what we would do is we do exactly what we were already doing. We're doing therapy, right? And we're taking videos of the kids and we're looking at, and they're doing their therapy and they're seeing the biofeedback, right? And we do some probe data and we do probe data at the beginning or at the end of every session. And we have that designed before we come in. So let's say we have ear, or air, ire, and R. And we just have the kids going ear, 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 ear. So five 
Okay. To 10 probes, ear, 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 ear. And we mark off, did they do it or did they not do it? Did they get that er in there or not? And then we're going to do or, 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 r, 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 whatever the case may be. So in my case, what we would do is whichever one was closest for that kid, because it's different for everybody. That's one of the things we found out in our research is we would use that one as our jumping off point, right? For then their training and their teaching. So everybody didn't get the exact same therapy. We individualize. That's the other beauty of single case design. You can individualize, which we are passionate about as speech pathologists, without hurting the research process. So let's say kiddo participant one, ear works really well for him. So we're going to go ear, 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 until we get an initial R, ear, right? Then we train, 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 take data. And we're using the ultrasound to give them visual feedback. Same thing, data, probe at the end. Did they get it? Did they get it? Did they get it? Not plus, minus, plus, minus. And each day we're going to plug that into an Excel sheet or one of the, again, therapy science has um, these great tools. You can YouTube, you can just search how to do a visual graph, a visual analysis, hmm. and you plug that data in and then you get to see. So I'll do baseline, 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 and make sure that they're just stable. They're either stable, they're not, or they're trending away, right? So before I start my treatment, I want to make sure that they're not learning this on their own. So I'm going to take a few data points and they're going to do their own thing. It's going to probably go like this for most of our kids, especially ours. If they haven't figured it out by the time they come to the R clinic, they probably aren't going to figure it out without therapy. And so their baseline is zero. They might get one or two. And then we start that intervention and we check how many are correct, how many are correct, how many are correct. In our clinic, we were doing five days a week for two weeks in the summer. So these kids were paying for, it was a summer intensive, definitely different than in the schools. It's definitely different than in private practice, but they were committed. They were coming. It was two weeks. It was during the summer. They came every day for two weeks. Yeah. I like that. So we had some daily data. Now, if you were doing this weekly, you would do the exact same thing. You would just collect that data per session. Okay. And then at the end of that, as we're plugging that in, what we hope we're seeing is this, right? We're seeing this positive trend across. Mm -hmm. Now, what I can do with that R is because I'm doing different probes, I can do maybe a multiple baseline or a multiple alternate treatment across treatment models, right? So they're doing er, ear, R, and I can measure each of those separately and see where they're going and start to see the trend. And then as I have that data, then I just, I can have this, I have this nice little graph. It's not a hard thing to do. Again, most people know Excel far better than I do. You can just plug it into Excel and Excel can make bar graphs. Excel can make pie charts. Excel can, so you can look at trends. You just look at the trend and that's all you're doing. And most of you are doing that, right? We're collecting data and we have to do progress reports, right? If you're in the hospitals, you have to say that your patient is making progress or you don't get paid anymore. Right. After they've plateaued for a while, you got to discharge them. That's the way it works. So you either change goals, right? So I've gotten this goal here. Now it's plateauing. Now I start on this goal. It's what's fascinating to me is that it's a scary thing because we call it statistics. (laughs) We call it research, but everybody is already doing it. Everybody already has this data in their daily notes. That's what good clinicians do. They say, mom, look, He was doing this at 40% and now I've got him to 65%. So we're going to keep going. 
you know, we're not at 80% yet. So I don't think he's generalizing just yet. And I don't think he's really competent in it. So we're going to keep doing it. But we've look at this upward trend we've got. We're going to keep doing this therapy. Why don't you do these things at home? Because look at how much he's grown since we started targeting it this right. way. One of the beauties of the pandemic was being online with my kids in therapy and being able to talk to their parents and have them see those data points right in front of them while we were doing it, right? The beauty of Boom Deck is the parents saw at the end that they got this many out of this many. And they were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, right? (laughs) It is. I don't know what we're doing differently other than the fact that you're involved. (laughs) Yeah. You know, clinicians can do research. They are doing research. This is a new mindset, little paradigm shift. Yeah, there you go. The key to me, the challenge is, so let's say you've been in a clinician for a really long time and you passionately believe in some intervention approach that people argue is not evidence-based. What do you do? You need to go back to the research and dig, 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 and not be afraid to be proven wrong. It's okay, but you might just prove everybody else wrong, but you got to have the data right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that might be the case. Maybe you're a new young clinician. You've read all of this stuff, but you just are trying to figure out which one is the best in practice for your kiddos. So you're looking at two or three and you're saying, we're going to try this one and we're going to look at the data. And then we're going to try this one. And we're going to look at the data. And you might find that kiddo A and B are way better with treatment A. Kiddo C and D did a lot better with treatment B. What does there that mean? Go. Does that mean that neither one of them are evidence or both of them are evidence? Both of them are evidence. It depends on the kid, right? It depends on the variable. There are so many variables. Uh, There is no one size fits all medicine. There's no one size fits all shot in the arm. There's no one size fits all smack in the head. There's no one size fits all program. There's no one size fits all speech therapist. Everybody on this in this audience probably has a different area of passion and expertise and they could talk circles around me in any number of areas because Me too. they're passionate and they love it and they've done their due diligence and they've read sure. all that they can read about it. Sure. It is time that we fess up and say that there are variables within the world of communication. And, you know, I mean, bottom line is that we're working with little humans and big humans. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, there's so many variables and you can't variable it to death, right. <laughs> you know, when you're doing these these, you know, big research projects. So yeah, that's always been kind of a pet peeve of mine. This information is just fascinating to me. What are replication studies? I mean, tell us, I mean, I kind of have a sense of it, but how does that fall into all of this? So if you're looking to kind of try to figure out how to do something and you've not done it before, what's one way to do it? Model yourself after somebody else who's already done it. Okay. That's all a replication study would be. So you might either find a large scale study and say, I really want to do this the way they wrote it. And I want to do it in my real clinical world as close as possible. Right. And so you, you make it very clear what you have to change. Let's say it's an approach that had wonderful success, but it was two times a week for an hour of session. You don't have two times a week for an hour of session. If you're in the schools, I know very few clinicians who have that much time, right? Yeah, exactly. So you would say, I'm going to replicate this with this one change. I'm going to do it once a week for 45 minutes and I'm going to see what happens. Does it take twice as long or do I get the same results? And if two or three clinicians, different clinicians with different kids, patients out in the world 
do the same thing only for 45 minutes or do the same thing just with a different patient population. Let's say they did it with kids with Down syndrome. You want to do it with kids with autism. Mm-hmm. You're going to replicate as much of that. That's why you have to put all of your methods in your study so that it can be replicated. That's ah, the golden go. rule of reporting research. I need to know okay. everything you did so that if I want to copy this study and see if I get the same results, I can do it. Okay. You need to know the assessments you need. That's why we have the appendices at the end. That's why we have to tell you every single thing. That's why the methods is the meat and boring to most people in a research article. But that's a great way to replicate it. Or you find another single subject design and you say, I can do this exact study, but I'm going to do it here with my kids. And now I have another study that has three more kids that got the same results. And then somebody else says it and they have five more kids that got the same results. Suddenly we have 10 different studies with 10 different clinicians with 30 different kids and they all got the same results. That's power. Yeah. That buyer's article, I highly recommend it. It is truly one of my, it's an easy read and you can just go to the study design that is most interesting or that you think is most applicable because there's some that you're going to use for what we call non-reversible versus reversible behaviors. We generally want to be teaching things that children or that patients are going to grow and learn and then use themselves. So non-reversible. So that's one study design that you might do. If you're coaching parents or you're teaching nurses or teachers something, that might be something that's reversible, right? So we want to know what happens when we give them these trainings and then we take them away. Does the behavior go away? If the behavior does go away, but we want it to stay, what do we have to modify and change in order to see that behavior stay? Does it mean we need to do it longer? Does it mean we need to do a different kind of training? Those kinds of things. And you figure those out by going to the literature and seeing what the broader literature says has and hasn't been done. You know, I was wondering too, if somebody wants to replicate a study, do you ever like contact the person, the original author, the original person? Can you contact them and talk with them about it and, and that kind of thing? I mean, does that ever happen? Probably. I think most researchers would love that. That's kind of what my dissertations started with. That's hmm. why I was contacting the the Hannon people, the journal, because I wasn't using Hannon, but I was using their model of coaching. I was using the idea of coaching and modeling to teachers. And I was using a lot of the work that they did on language expansion, extensions, those kinds of things, enrichment. And so, you know, I did that. I contacted Laura Justice. She was gracious enough to meet with me and we went to two or three sessions at ASHA together that she felt would be really helpful for me to learn and to hear and to grow. So there are definitely researchers out there at various universities who would love to have those conversations to meet you at ASHA and have lunch and talk about, hmm. or you go hear their talk and then you go up and give them a card afterwards and say, hey, I work with these kids in this area. And the one thing that has to be really thought through is you know, human subjects takes IRB protection. Human subjects research means that a lot of hoops have to be jumped through. We cannot take advantage of those kids, those families, those patients who need our services. Right. What did you say, IRB? Institutional Review Board. So if you do work at a school and you want to do some work, you find a researcher who's interested, then they would be doing their side of it with getting institutional review board approval at at their institution. And most schools have internal institutional review boards for studies to be carried out. That looks very different from school system to school system, but larger school systems 
do a lot of research internally and externally. And so they have those hospitals, all hospitals have their own institutional review board. So anytime that that, so those are the things that, you know, you would be partnering with this researcher to kind of make sure that you're writing those, you're consenting everyone, you get everything approved first before you can yeah. use their data for, for research. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be doing your own clinically relevant single subject. You're doing this data anyway and plugging it in and trying to learn how to do it and, and to inform your practice better. That doesn't take institutional review board approval because you're not disseminating the information. If you then decide to disseminate the information, then you would need to consent and you would need to make sure that you have that approval and that the kids are de-identified and those kinds of things. So that's the caveat that if you want to go then present this at a public forum, those T's have to be crossed and I's have to be dotted before that could happen. But as far as learning how to do this work and learning how to understand and read it and inform your practice better and use it as a clinical data-driven tool you don't need anybody's approval to do that. I bet most of you are doing some form of that. You just, you haven't operationalized it in this way to present it to a lead therapist, a teacher, a parent, an IEP team, a principal, if you're in a hospital, the med team, the doctor who's given the orders, those kinds of things. Okay. So let's say I'm a private practitioner, then I have a child or three kids or whatever, and I would like to do this. What do I do first? Do I talk with the parent slash caregiver about it and get permission from them? Maybe read that book <laughs> or read, you know, the clearinghouse information and so on and organize myself. I mean, what do I do first and second and third? Or does it matter? There's two different answers to that question. If I just want to do this and I just want to be good at it and I just want to understand it, then I go digging. I go to What Works Clearinghouse. I go to that buyer's article and start to understand single subject. And then from those two places, I go then to the literature on the topic that I'm interested in, specifically within the field. And I read that literature, both broad scope and single subject, whatever's out there on that. Okay. And that is where I might, I start to inform what intervention I want to really start examining or I have an intervention that I want to examine, and that's where my jumping off point is in the ASHA journals, right? And my jumping off point for understanding single subject research and evidence-based practice is to understand how research works, which is going to therapy science, going to what works clearinghouse, going to articles like the buyer's article. If you have your statistics textbooks from your master's program, just review them, take a peek at them looking up those designs and understanding it. That's one thing. I just want to sort of be better informed in how to do this in my practice. Other side, if I want to do this and have data and present it and send it out to OSLA, to a state, I say OSLA because I was Ohio Speech Language Hearing Association, to a state association, to ASHA, to another place, a form of public consumption, then I start with the literature review and the learning how to do it. And then my next step is talking to my institution about how do I collect data and finding someone in that institution who has done it before that can mentor you through it. Hmm. You're saying institution. I mean, you're thinking... Your school, your hospital, your agency. Most hospitals and schools, 
a lot of the larger schools will have somebody. Larger districts. Okay. Yeah. The smaller districts, what you might have to do is find someone to mentor you that is just, you find that and you build that relationship. You talk to people, you email someone, you go to, to a state or a national convention and you connect with someone. Can we have lunch? Okay. Can I You hand them your card? Can we chat via Zoom? I want to learn more about this. And then you then go to your own institutional review board, whatever that looks like. In hmm. some schools, it's as simple as approval from the superintendent, a letter from the superintendent. It just okay. looks very, very different depending on the, the state you're in, the school system you're in, the locality, like all of those things. But sure. if you want to present something in public, you have to make sure that you have that permission and that you have consented patients, consented the participants, whoever they might be. Right, right. Yeah, that makes total sense. This is a crazy question, but if I'm doing... If I have a private practice and I'm actually charging for my services, either private pay or insurance, can I still collect a payment from them during this time when I'm doing this research or does that stop? That's a trickier question. It may depend on, I mean, many of our many projects are done by the clinicians who are serving those kids. Oftentimes what the school will say is it can't be part of their therapy. This has to be outside over and above, not part of their okay. therapy. There are other school systems that say, yeah, we want the data on what we're doing. So we can tell the parents that we're doing evidence-based practice, that we're doing good things. But the safest thing to me is always, always to contact ASHA Ethics Board and say, how do I do this where I am? You contact your state ethics board okay. and you contact the National Ethics Board, because the states are different. So I can't tell you from Ohio what they're going to expect you to do in Maryland, what they're going to expect you to do in Tennessee. Margaret Rogers at ASHA is super responsive. She's amazing to work with. And you just shoot an email and say, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Can I do this? How does this work? But really, I think the key is to first just start to get comfortable with the idea that you're doing this data collection. And what does yeah. it look like before you worry about presentations and participants yeah. and, and all of those things? Because there's a lot that goes into that side of it. Mm -hmm. That's why it takes a while to get a degree over and above the master's degree, because you got to learn a lot. And there's a lot of hoops to jump through. But as far as being an informed clinician who can collect data and have a conversation with those researchers and maybe then jump on their teams, that you can do right where you are. Okay. Ooh, this is inspirational. All right. Yes, yes. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, this is a whole new thing. I mean, it just, it really is. And it's probably, it's not new to you and maybe it's not new to everybody, but this is kind of new. <laughs> yeah. It's is it kind of new. new? Okay. It's kind of new. Yeah. I'm it's a supporter. New. I'm a supporter of it. Yeah. Great. I love it. I think it's super exciting. Having been in the academic world as an instructor, professor, but having been a clinician for a long time before that, yeah, I have always, always felt that the missing link in many research publications is the conversation with the down and dirty frontline therapist. Yes. And that oftentimes when I would go to ASHA, I got into the habit of going to things that were just going to affirm what I was already doing. <laughs> and I didn't really vet 
yeah, the research behind what they were telling me because I just needed my CEUs and it was really nice to get a pat on the back and say, look at what you're doing. It's really good. And then after a few years of teaching and really having to update my classes constantly, I got even more passionate about the fact that, you know, clinicians are doing some really hard work. I never left the clinical world. Maybe that's why, Hmm. but I'm passionate about the fact that they know a lot and they need to tell people that, you know, what they know and what they find. And one of the ways to do that is data. It's data. It's one of the best ways to support why you do what you do, when you do it, how you do it, and why you should get paid because it works. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Now, how can we get in touch with you? You can email me at sandra.combs, C-O-M-B as in boy, S as in Sam, like comb your hair, at rm.edu. That's my work email. You're welcome to email me and I'll be at ASHA. If you're going to be at ASHA, I'll be at the RM booth probably most of the time. And that's Rocky Mountain, right? Rocky Mountain University. Yes, it's in Utah, but I'm in Bethesda. So I work here at my little Zoom all day, every day. Do you? Oh my. That's okay. All right, girl. Well, thank you so very, very much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you. To all of you, I want to thank you for being here and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast and where you learn not only practical information, you earn CEUs. And in a few days, the audio version of this episode will be available for free on all the popular podcast apps like Apple Podcast and TuneIn and Podbean and all of those. And I greatly appreciate your positive comments and your reviews and your support. And as you may know, the Speech Link meets every other Thursday at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And the next time that we meet is November 4, same time. And Dr. Ray Kent, PhD. He's amazing. I've followed this amazing man and his research for many years. He'll share with us his soon-to-be-published research on diadocokinetic rate. DDK. So that's going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to that one too. So as we wrap up, just log into your speechtherapypd.com account, take the quiz, do the evaluation, and print out your certificate. Do know you are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for all that you do for your therapy kids, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit sharpochart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.